As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 67, The Tightening Noose. The first of our two emperors lay dead, the third is Justinian II. Last time, he returned from Cherson to claim his throne with the help of the Bulgars. Contrary to his historical reputation for bloody revenge, the emperor's first political actions upon resuming office were to try and mend fences. The death of Abd al-Malik that year was the perfect opportunity to try and make peace with the Arabs. The emperor set free several thousand prisoners of war and sent them to the new caliph, Walid, in the hope that he might come to the negotiating table. At the same time, envoys were dispatched to heal the rift with the pope. You may remember that Justinian's Quinisext Council, the one which updated canon law, had been dismissed by Pope Sergius. That pontiff had since passed away, as had a couple of his successors. The new man, though, Constantine, seemed ready to improve relations with Constantinople. He accepted an invitation to the capital and was shown great respect upon arrival. According to the papal histories, Justinian got down and kissed his slippered feet. Whether he did or not, the two reached an agreement over the council. The Pope accepted all the inoffensive canons, while the Emperor understood that the rest would not be enforced in Italy. Seemingly to seal this new friendly relationship, Justinian sent an expedition to Ravenna to discipline the Archbishop there. Ravenna's geographical isolation from Rome had led to tensions across the last few decades over the scope of the Pope's authority. The Archbishop had refused to sign some important documents which the Pope had sent him, and now Justinian dispatched a few ships to haul the man off for trial. It seems like on arrival, the troops were pretty rough with the people of Ravenna, and may even have looted some buildings while they were at it. Our chief source for this is a later historian from Ravenna, who enjoys describing the emperor in deeply unflattering terms. 
Whatever the exact truth, the whole business was an unfortunate incident and indicative of the ill-disciplined state of the armies at this point. Incidentally, from that same historian, Agnellus of Ravenna, we get the story about Justinian replacing his nose with one made of pure gold. It's not mentioned anywhere else, and there's no explanation of how it was held in place on his face. It seems more likely that the nickname used for the emperor, Rhinotmitos, the slit-nosed or cut-nosed, confirms the fact that his nose was still in place and no gold accessory was needed. Despite his peaceful overtures, though, Walid was determined to continue his father's policy of flattening all the fences between Syria and the Bosphorus. Having cowed Armenia and settled men in Cilicia, it was time to start preparing Anatolia for a land invasion. During the campaign season of 707, Walid's brother Maslama led a force into Cappadocia and placed the Byzantine city of Tyana under siege. The city was well fortified and rebuffed an initial attempt to take it. The Romans assumed, though, that the Arabs would withdraw as winter set in, but they did no such thing. They were to stay for nine months. Justinian, vigorous as ever, but also trying to do too much, sent a relief force, but at the same time marched himself against the Bulgars. We'll come back to that in a moment. The force sent to relieve Tyana included a number of raw recruits, some, it would seem, pressed into service against their will. The shortage of men was in part because the emperor wanted some of the best troops with him, and in part because he'd just executed a number of senior military officers. The force that arrived in Cappadocia was therefore no match for the Arabs. It was quickly routed, and Tyana would eventually surrender. The road to Constantinople was being paved. The city was sacked and the entire population deported to the caliphate. Meanwhile, in the Balkans, Justinian marched out at the head of a force to deal with the Bulgars. It seems odd that the emperor would go to fight Turval's men, given that he'd just weighed them down with gifts and kind words. But perhaps the emperor was feeling the sting of those who were outraged that he'd used barbarian muscle to regain the throne. By campaigning against them, perhaps he was looking to counter this perception and add some luster to his legitimacy. The alternative explanation, which does seem possible, is that these Bulgars were independent of Turval's Khanate and were simply raiding in the absence of any imperial defence. Either way, Justinian's men marched to the city of Anchialis on the coast and took it back from Bulgar hands. But foolishly chasing men from the steppes, the Byzantine cavalry were led astray and then routed when the enemy horsemen wheeled around. The emperor found himself in the humiliating position of being counter-besieged, having only just taken the city. Eventually he was forced to cripple his own horses to prevent them from being taken and left the city by sea when the imperial fleet arrived to save him. These military failures demonstrate the decline in numbers and quality of the army that I talked about during the end of the century episodes. And of course, three coups in such a short space of time cost valuable lives as well. It all left the armies in the east with far more 
than they could handle. After taking Tyana, Maslama raided north to Amasia, while another commander led a force all the way to Chrysopolis, next door to Chalcedon, and set fire to the harbour. Over the next two years, Walid's men tightened their grip on the towns of Cilicia and invaded Isauria, capturing some fortresses there. Justinian ordered the imperial fleet to make a counterattack, which they did, but it had no real effect on the situation. He also sent a small mission to try and bring Lazica back into the Roman orbit, which we will hear more about next week. In 711, Maslama took control of the forces in Armenia and captured several key forts in the mountains, including Kamacha, which you can see on the map. With the military situation collapsing and looking very much like the series of defeats which Phocas and Heraclius had suffered during the war with Persia, another crisis was to spring up, which ultimately cost Justinian his throne. Something was going on back in Cherson. The histories claim that Justinian, mad with vengeance, had decided to bring the ruling council to Constantinople to be tortured. It was revenge for whatever mistreatment he felt he'd suffered during his time as their guest. That probably isn't what was going on, and it seems more likely that what had actually happened was that the Khazars had made some kind of threatening move toward the city, perhaps even being invited by the city councillors to have some kind of military presence there in fear of retribution by Justinian. But that is speculation. The emperor seems to have dispatched a fleet under Stephen the Patrician with orders to retake and regarrison the city, and of course execute any rebellious councillors he found. That part of the mission was successful, but the ships sent encountered a storm on their way home and lost quite a few men. Apparently this misfortune was enough for the Chersonites to rebel again and kick out the governor who Justinian had just installed. So, another fleet was sent to do the job all over again. The Chersonites invited the leaders of the expedition in, and then killed them. Determined to maintain their independence, but sure that Justinian would continue to try and crush them, they hailed their own emperor. This was Vardan, an official of Armenian heritage, who had served the emperor and his father, but had been exiled to Cherson by Absimar. Varden was given the imperial name Philippicus, as he was proclaimed, but we will of course be calling him Vardan the Armenian. Genuinely furious on hearing this news, Justinian dispatched another contingent of the imperial fleet to storm Cherson and really do some damage. The patrician Maurus led the armada across the Black Sea and began to attack the walls of the city. Vardan, the Armenian, fled to the Khazars and asked for their help. When a Khazar force appeared along the coast, Maurus realised that his marines would be annihilated if they set foot on shore. The men of the Imperial Navy made the same calculations that their brethren under Apsimar had done just a few years earlier. Fearing the wrath of the Emperor if they headed home with nothing to show for their labours, they decided to do the other thing. They hailed Vardan as their emperor and agreed to sail him straight to Constantinople to try and take the capital. Their timing was perfect. Active as ever, Justinian had decided to lead troops in person against the Arabs. It was now the summer of 711, 
and to counter their raids, the emperor had gathered forces near the city of Sinope in central Anatolia when the news reached him. Once again, the emperor was forced to race desperately across the countryside in an attempt to secure his throne. Justinian pushed every horse he rode as hard as he could, but hadn't even reached Chalcedon when word came that Varden's fleet had beaten him back to the city. And sadly, he was also informed that the usurper had not only taken the throne, but that his six-year-old son Tiberius had been dragged out of a church and butchered. Sinking into depression, the emperor accepted the inevitable. Men came from Varden promising immunity for the Opsikion troops if they handed Justinian over. They did, and his head was cut off. Justinian was 42 years old and had ruled the empire for 16 years with a 10-year exile in between. I don't think Justinian was a terrible emperor, and from everything I've read, the portrayal of him as a monster is all exaggeration. He was, however, too impatient for the times he lived in. His first reign should never have ended when it did, if he'd been more adept at handling his generals, and more realistic about the battles he could win, then perhaps the Heraclean dynasty might have survived a little longer. His second reign was probably doomed from the start, given the advance of the Arabs and the collapsing loyalty and competence of the Roman army. Sadly, the real lasting legacy of his reign was to make it clear to everyone that simple mutilation was not enough to disqualify someone from wearing the purple. The legacy of the Heraclean dynasty, though, is far brighter. There's so much we don't know about the 7th century that it's really hard to know how much credit to give Heraclius or Constance II for the establishment of the themes. What we can say for certain is that for hundreds of miles in every direction, the world was conquered by the Caliphate, but not across the Taurus Mountains. And we also know that before Heraclius... And after Justinian II, the empire fell into disastrous civil wars, which nearly ended its existence. But while they reigned, the Romans held the line. In the short term, the death of Justinian was just more bad news for Byzantium. The noose was tightening around the empire's neck, and the Byzantines were arguing over who should get the honour of being there when the air runs out. Justinian's head was sent to the capital to prove to the people that he really was gone this time, and then apparently it was dispatched to Rome and Ravenna for his enemies there to get a good look. We know very little about Vardan the Armenian, our fourth of seven emperors. It's possible that he was actually born in Pergamum, on the west coast of Anatolia, to a colony of Armenians living there. He certainly sympathised with Armenian theological concerns, because one of his first acts on entering the palace was to restore monothaletism. Yes, the by now long-defunct formula that Heraclius had imposed on the church. It was still favoured by many who saw it as an acceptable compromise to the great monophysite problem. And as most Armenian Christians were monophysites, Vardan wanted the empire's official position reversed. So he had the Sixth Ecumenical Council repudiated and the Patriarch Kiros deposed. 
Vardin seems to have done nothing to arrest the collapse of the military situation, though. In 712, Maslama advanced into Roman territory from the city of Melitene and captured the major cities of Sebastea and Amasia, amongst others, while two other raiding parties headed south and west, taking many prisoners and driving them home with them. Meanwhile, Turval, using the same pretext that Khusro II had used upon the death of Maurice, came raiding up to the gates of Constantinople. His benefactor had been killed, so why shouldn't he do a little smash and grab and hope to intimidate Vardan into renewing the favourable terms of his treaty with Justinian? With almost no troops in Thrace, the Bulgars appeared outside the walls of the capital unheralded. Apparently a large gathering of wealthy Constantinopolitans had gathered outside the walls for a wedding feast and were carrying their gifts and best gold and silver plates. Much to their shock and horror, the Bulgars descended on them with great slaughter. Vardan soon transferred troops from the Obsikion theme over to Thrace to prevent further raiding. However, this was to be his undoing. The next year, 713, everything went wrong for the emperor. In Italy, the response to the restoration of monothelitism was predictably rancorous, and imperial officials were ejected from Rome. The Bulgars and Arabs raided again, and another city fell, this time deep inside the Anatolikon theme. Having just about survived a Bulgar attack in Thrace, one of the commanders of the Ipsikion, George Barafos, decided that he would do a better job of being emperor than Vardan. This is the problem of legitimacy. Vardan had arguably less right to rule than any of the other recent emperors. At least Apsimar and Leontius had had the loyalty of men they'd commanded in the field. Vardan had just been in the right place at the right time. The men of the Obsikion had just been serving with Justinian two years before. They had handed him over to preserve their privileges, but they had no loyalty to the new man. George now had a contingent of troops, loyal to him in Thrace, which meant that he could walk through the city gates without anyone asking why. It's also worth pointing out that the theme armies had already become embedded in the communities where they lived. Their permanent occupation of Anatolia meant that soldiers would marry a local woman and raise a family where they were stationed. So uprooting men and sending them to guard Thrace was of course very unpopular. In order not to raise suspicion, George sent some men ahead of him, commanded by a deputy named Rufus, to take the emperor by surprise. Then George could enter the city, calm the situation down and assume control. It was early June. Vardan had just finished a sumptuous banquet with some high-ranking guests. He took his midday siesta as Rufus made his move. His men passed through the palace unnoticed, dragged the emperor off to one of the changing rooms in the hippodrome, where no one would find them, and blinded him. Vardan had ruled the empire for about 19 unimpressive months and would spend the rest of his days in one of the capital's monasteries. Confusion now reigned. The emperor was missing, and no one could trust anyone else. George out in Thrace had clearly not read his histories, because possession of the capital was key to becoming emperor. 
Once the blinded Varden was discovered, the imperial officials and senators serving in the palace sat down and hashed out a deal to get one of their own declared emperor before the rest of the Obsidian troops arrived. The following day was Pentecost, which meant huge crowds entered the Hagia Sophia with the whirl of rumour as rich as it would ever be. The man who stepped forward to be crowned by the patriarch was Artemius, the emperor's chief secretary. This didn't mean secretary in our sense of personal assistant. It meant that he was responsible for writing imperial legislation, a very important role. Artemius was given the imperial name of Anastasius, and so became Anastasius II to history. But of course, to us, he will remain Artemius the Secretary. We don't know why he chose the name Anastasius, but it's a plausible suggestion that he was hoping to invoke the memory of that fine emperor, the successor to Zeno, who, like Artemius, had once been a mere palace official. Artemius's first act was to have George and his senior officers seized and blinded. Others were exiled. We don't know if he offered any bribes or other inducements to get the Obsicion troops to accept this turn of events, but either way, I can tell you, it didn't really work. Quiet for now, the men of the Obsicion weren't going to support the new emperor for long. But in the short term, that didn't really matter. Artemius was in charge, and the major advantage of his elevation is that he did not need to be brought up to speed. Having served at Varden's right hand, he knew all the major policy issues facing Byzantium. He quickly reversed his predecessor's monothelite restoration, and then he turned to the army, appointing competent men that he could trust. The most important elevation was that of a certain Leo to become Stratigos of the Anatolikon. Artemius is the fifth of our seven emperors, and Leo will be number seven. Next, it was the Arab invasions that had to be dealt with. As spring of 714 appeared, Maslama invaded Anatolia again and made for Ancyra. Artemius organized an embassy, full of important men, and sent them to Damascus to ask the Caliph Walid for peace. The emperor knew that this mission would fail. The Arabs hadn't been capturing fortresses for the past decade to strengthen their bargaining position. So he informed several members of the delegation that their real purpose was to spy on Saracen preparations. How close were they to attacking Constantinople? When the embassy returned, the answer was clear. Troops and supplies were being gathered, ships were being prepared... The plan to capture Constantinople was well beyond the planning stages. Artemius immediately issued an instruction to the people of the capital. If you can't acquire enough food to feed your family for three years, then you need to leave the city. While the people digested that, the emperor began filling the storehouses and granaries of the city. Corn was shipped in and put under armed guard. The sea walls were strengthened and restored though it's possible that Apsimar the Admiral had already begun work on that. Down in the docks, new warships were built, and anti-siege weapons were dusted down and dragged to the top of every wall. It was a good time for the Empire to be run by a bureaucrat. 
The following year, 715, the Caliph al-Walid died at the age of 47, and in line with his father's plans, his easygoing brother Suleiman became the new ruler. However, Suleiman's reign saw no change in policy, and he continued to make resources available for his brother Maslama to prepare the invasion. News reached the emperor that the Egyptian fleet had sailed north to the modern Lebanon to cut wood to build more ships. Keen to delay the eventual attack in any way he could, Artemius, the secretary, ordered the imperial fleet to try and catch the Arabs unaware and damage their navy. The fleet began to gather at Rhodes under the command of the general logothete John. A detachment from the Obsikion theme sailed down to join them. However, once there, the troops made it clear that they had no intention of sailing any further. Tensions flared up, and the Obsikion men beat John to death. Sensing disaster, and keen not to be associated with this dishonourable venture, the other marines and sailors abandoned the Obsikion troops and returned to their stations. The Obsikion soldiers now prepared to get it right this time and overthrow the emperor, placing one of their own on the throne. But they needed a suitable candidate. It would not be acceptable to choose an unknown from amongst their ranks. They wanted someone plausible but controllable. As they sailed home, they stopped at the city of Adramitium and got word of a well-liked and respected local tax collector named Theodosius. A likeable tax collector must be a good man, and the troops sent word that he should come to the port and accept the honour of being their new sovereign. True to his reputation for intelligence, Theodosius immediately fled upon hearing this. Heading for the nearest mountain, he hoped the troops would pick someone else, but alas, they insisted. Once they tracked him down, they made it clear that he had two seconds to either accept the purple or accept death and he chose the former. Capturing Constantinople was going to be no easy matter, though. The city was by now well prepared for a siege. The men of the imperial fleet who had remained in the city stayed loyal to the emperor. Cast against them, though, were now the entire Obsikian army, who joined their comrades in revolt. The rebellious soldiers occupied Chrysopolis, but spent a futile six months trying to find a way past the loyal navy. Eventually, Theodosius and a company of soldiers landed on the Thracian shore and made their way to the land walls. It was Absamar's revolt all over again as they made their way up and down the walls, looking for guards who would accept a bribe. It's possible that some of the men guarding the gates were themselves from the Obsikion theme, and eventually someone took the bait. The soldiers barged into the city, looting and pillaging as they went. The palace fell quickly, but the emperor was nowhere to be found. Artemius the secretary had actually slipped across the Bosphorus and taken up residence at Nicaea. He was hoping to make contact with the commanders of the Anatolikon and Armeniakon, men who he'd appointed and who he hoped might march to his rescue. They did not, a fact we will explore next episode. 
the Obsician troops gathered up Artemius's ministers and dragged them over to Nicaea to pointedly show the emperor that further resistance was futile. Artemius negotiated well, though, and agreed to give up the throne and join a monastery in Thessalonica. Best of all, he would suffer no mutilation. The men of the army probably concluded that without their backing, he had no chance of returning to power anyway. They were sort of right about that. Artemius the secretary was still middle-aged and had done a pretty good job of being emperor for two years. He had enjoyed his time in power as well, and we will see him again. So, the sixth of our seven emperors was now crowned Theodosius III, and naturally will be known as Theodosius the Tax Collector for the rest of his short reign. At a time when the Roman Empire was facing one of the greatest threats to its existence, the man in charge didn't want to be there, had no experience of high-level governance, and was under the thumb of his selfish troops. Things are not looking good for Byzantium. Join me next time as we meet lucky number seven, the Stratigos of the Anatolikon, the man we will come to simply call Leo the Third. <laughs>